This podcast is sponsored by the Music Player Network at musicplayer.com, the premier musician resource for keyboard players and beyond. Since the year 2000, the Music Player Network has been the go-to source for news and views on music technology, playing tips, and gigging help. The Keyboard Corner is one of the longest-running keyboard forums in Internet history, with guitar, bass, drum, and numerous recording and music tech forums also on offer. Frequented by weekend warriors, manufacturers' representatives, and professionals alike, MPN provides an invaluable resource for any musician, and it's 100% free to sign up and use. Go to www.musicplayer.com to see for yourself. Welcome to episode 10 of the Keyboard Chronicles, a podcast for keyboard players of the gigging variety. I'm your host, David Holloway, and it's great to be with you again. And I'm also joined by my esteemed co-host, Paul Bindig. How are you, Paul? I'm awesome. Thank you, David. So we've just wrapped a, an interview with a very busy man, um, albeit he's slightly less busy at present given the circumstances we all find ourselves in. Um, Andy Burton in recent years has completed tours with Cindy Lauper, John Mayer, Rufus Rain- Wainwright and Little Stephen and the Disciples of Soul. Um, add to that an incredible discography of recordings as a, a session player and you have a guy um, that has some great insights and, and some insights he did give Paul, I found. Yeah, I mean, certainly what I took out of it was his approach to playing with others or in a, in a large ensemble and, and where you fit in that. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, so, I mean, have a listen and we'll talk more after the interview, but enjoy. Hi, Andy. Thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Great to be here. Thanks so much for asking me. Um, how, how are things going for you right at the moment? Are you managing to keep busy in these interesting times? Uh, yeah. Yes, I'm keeping busy. Um, we're sheltering in place like everybody else, me and my wife. And um, uh, I have, I'm about 100 miles outside New York. Um, and uh, I was actually in the middle of renovating my studio when this all went down. <laughs> So that's been interesting, but some of it is still going on uh, by, you know, by, you know, remotely. I mean, some little, you know, just while everyone's keeping safe, but some of the contractors, you know, want to keep working. Yeah. And I, and, and I don't blame them. So I, that's been going on, albeit at a much slowed pace. Um, and I brought a lot of my keyboards out here with me. So I, I have a little, I have a working recording rig and I've been doing some remote sessions which is great for uh, keeping the craft going, keeping the focus going. Um, and I'm on the east end of Long Island, which is a beautiful place. So, um, but uh, so other than that and, and doing basic domestic tasks, uh, um, you know, everything is, you know, everything's been pretty, pretty uh, steady and calm. Yeah, which good is, stuff. You know, all you can, about the best you can hope for in times like these. I'm not sure how things are in um, 
the Sydney area right now. Yeah, we're, so we're very lucky compared to the US at the moment, but obviously we're still in essentially the same uh, sort of semi-lockdown, not meant to go out except to get food, that sort of stuff. So, yeah, very similar. Um, yeah. And, and Andy, I was saying in the introduction to, to the show to Paul that um, I, I've got every reason to be jealous of most guests I, we, we interview because we only interview notable keyboard players, but I think you in particular because you, you've played with three of the artists that I would give a left leg to spend one night on stage with, let alone multiples, so we'll get into that. But can you okay. just give, give our listeners a, a bit of a potted history of yourself, um, the man and the musician, sort of how did things start out? I come from a musical family. Um, it, so um, my, my mother was a um, multi-instrumentalist. I mean, she was a, a doctor, a psychiatrist by profession, but um, she went to high school of music and art in New York. And, uh, and so she played piano, violin, and bassoon. And she also sang in a choir. She sang in, um, in the Robert Shaw Chorale, which was a famous chorale in its day under yeah. Arturo Toscanini. So she was doing all that, you know, before she decided to go into medicine. Um, and um, so she she inculcated myself and my two sisters with music at very, very early ages. And I, I ended up going to Manhattan School of Music uh, for their, their um, what they call their college prep program which was basically every Saturday from age six to about age 11, I would go and I would learn piano. I studied cello also. Um, and I would uh, sing in the choir and I would take music theory and ear training. So I had that. That was um, instead of playing baseball, that's what I was doing on weekends. So that's I, I had a real love for it right away. Uh, it was mostly classical Um Although I obviously I had an ear towards what was going on in the pop music world, which is where I ended up being anyway. Um, I had an uncle that played boogie woogie piano, who showed me a lot of things to offset all the the Bach and the the Chopin and the <laughs> and the Hannon exercises and rags. You know, I played the Scott Joplin rags. Yeah. I, I, I'm quite into that. Um, <clears throat> and then um, ultimately. I decided I wanted to forge my own path and I didn't want to go the classical route. Um, as much as I love music and, you know, when you get to, we get to the desert Island disc part, uh, <laughs> there's some classical, there's some <laughs> classical, uh, that I would, that I, I would love to be with, uh, the, you know, if I had to choose, but, um, it's some of the finest, you know, music ever made. So, um, but in any case, uh, I decided, to, you know, I would, I would, um, I started playing in rock bands about the age of 12, my first attempt at playing in a band. Yeah. And uh, had some, you know, some mates early on, some friends that uh, that were, you know, we had various configurations all through junior high school and high school and, you know, like the usual thing. Um, uh, then I, uh, but I went to Harvard for college and um, I thought I was going to do something completely different. For a while, I, I learned with a lot of other things, but I ended up becoming a music major in the end and uh, studied some electronic music while I was there. Um, there was, we had a, a, a music lab that where I got to work with 
old Scully tape machines, oh, yeah. you know, doing music concrete, stuff like that, um, working with Buchla synthesizers, as well as, you know, MIDI and sampling and all of that stuff, and sequencing. So I, I, I had a real smorgasbord of different, of different um, ways of making music. And I, I never, I, I was always very eclectic in my tastes. And so I was just, and I had a professor there, a guy named Ivan Cheretnin, who's no longer with us, unfortunately, but he was a, a classical composer. And he, in some of his classes, he would have us listening to, you know, anything from Tibetan monks chanting to Michael Jackson to, <laughs> um, you know, li literally anything. He, he was completely, he was the most what you'd say Catholic with a small C in terms of taste of anybody that I've ever met. And so he was a huge influence on me uh, just in terms of his attitude yeah. and approach and a completely universal approach toward music. So anyway, so that, then after that I graduated and um, I didn't want to be in academia either. So I decided um, I would try my luck at uh, playing in bands and I answered some ads in, I went back to New York and I answered some ads in the Village Voice, um, which is another non no longer existing newspaper. And I got into a band that was signed to Warner Brothers. And, uh, and then I was off. You know, the, the, we made two records that didn't go anywhere, but I did meet a lot of, a lot of the players in the bands were also studio musicians. So I kind of, it was kind of a backdoor into, um, the studio musician scene in New York at the time. So I got, so I got into that. So that became, so I, 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 I lived in um, Hoboken, New Jersey, which was an affordable, an affordable place to live mm. right across the river and uh, 20 minutes to Greenwich village, but you know, from my, from my front door. So I got to, you know, I worked different scenes, what there was, there was a, there was the studio musicians and there was the sort of inside, um, commercial pop world, you know, people that also played on, on, uh, you know, people that worked, you know, on the, I didn't work on Madonna's records, but I worked with people that played on Madonna's records. Okay. And then there was, then there was the other side of the river. There was the alternative rock scene that was brewing and I was, you know, working for less money, but you know, cooler people sometimes, sometimes, <laughs> um, uh, you know, so I, I, were, I played both sides of the fence. You know, I just I, like everybody needed a keyboard player at some point. You know, it was not the you know keyboards. I found my my it was it was um, I would get signed or hire, I'd get hired by a band when they would get signed to a record label, and then they would let me go as soon as they lost their deal. That was yeah. that was my <laughs> I was in and out of a lot of situations that way. But they they wanted the keyboards to to up the ante musically, and um, so I did a you know so I, I was knocking around New York for quite a few years, um, and I played some I you know I I just sort of went with whatever I thought was cool, you know whatever seemed like the coolest thing that, that I could get into at the time. Uh, I played for years with uh, great rock and rock and roller Ian Hunter. Um, we, 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 I, I was with him for about eight years and, uh, and we toured, oh, I did a lot of touring with him in America and, um, and Europe. 
Um, we never made it to Australia. No, sadly. Yeah. Sadly, I've been trying to get him to come over there. I I, I hope he he's had some some health issues, and I I, I sincerely hope he fully recovers and is mm. able to come to Australia. Um, but then when I started getting um, tours, I I first my first kind of world tour was with uh, Rufus Wainwright. And that was actually my first time coming to your shores. That was back in 2012. Rufus is an insanely talented um, singer, songwriter, composer. You know, he's written operas. He's just one of the, he's a real, he's a real prodigy. Um, and uh, so I got to play Sydney Opera House with him, which was definitely a, I would say a live performance career highlight for me. Yeah. Um, one of the, you know, he, he's, he was great. And um, I got to play all kinds of places like Israel that I'd never been to before. Um, I'd never played before. Um, and, um, and of course your lovely country and, and New Zealand as well. And um, let's see, after that, it was John Mayer, which was a totally different scene. Um, much more inside pop, as you as you know, mm. but uh, he was preparing for his scene that he's in now, which is he kind of has a dual track career. He's got his solo career, which is you know focusing on his pop material um, somewhat, and then he's also got the, the Dead and Company thing, which is his. He was looking for the Grateful Dead audience. Um, they are some of the loyal, most loyal fans in the world and uh he he liked to jam out and he likes to play so when i played with him he was basically kind of almost like it seemed in retrospect preparing for that because he had the band that he put together um were all great soloists and he had a, he did we did a lot of jamming and we did a lot of trading solos yeah. which is really fun in front of 10 or fifteen thousand <laughs> or more to be just playing whatever you know just feeling the moment and playing it improvising taking a song in any number of directions in front of a crowd that large they're following you this that was that's another career highlight just that that gig in general and he he treated us so well uh, and, and you, uh, you raise a good point there andy about the trading solos and and also back to your comment on pl um, playing on both sides of the fence and, and it probably links to the next question which was you mm -hmm. played for acts like, as you said, Rufus Rainwright, John Mayer, Ian Hunter, Cindy Lauper. Can you compare and contrast the different ways these bands have worked for you and a run? So, yeah, your role within them, but just, you know, your observations on how different bands have run as far as willingness to experiment on stage versus, you know, more rigid, that sort of stuff. Yeah, well, I would say... Um, I would say that with John... It was by far of, say, like the four, say, large world world tour level acts that I that I've been with in the last several years. John was was by far the most free in that sense because he was deliberately going for that that improvis improvisational aesthetic, which is really something in contrast to you know, his pop material, mm -hmm. the way we would go and we would take some of his songs and stretch them out and they could, you know, and they could go anywhere. Now that's not to say anything uh, disparaging about the others. Um, but, you know, Rufus, we worked out very, you know, he had very dense orchestrational kind of material 
that a lot of it very inspired by Italian opera and French uh, classical music. And I had my hands full. I had to offload some of my keyboard playing onto another, onto a the saxophonist okay. who also played keyboards. I, I had my hands full, but it was all completely arranged. Um, and really the same applies to, to Cindy. Um, a lot of the stuff with Cindy, particularly the famous, you know, the radio hits, the, the you know, the, the, her signature songs. I was, I was copying the records as much as, as much as I could, you know, I mean, you do end up bringing a little bit of yourself into it, no matter what. But um, there's a lot of sounds that people expect to hear on on her records. Mm. It was there was that, it was that whole that, that you know the whole um, I don't know if you will that 1983 sound. Yeah, you know, there was all the all those you know the the Roland Juno synths and the uh, you know, and the Oberheims and the DX7s and like that, that whole aesthetic, um, you know, those sounds are signature and, that, oh, yeah. and they're, they're, you, you miss them. You miss them if you don't hear them. If you don't hear that pad on time after time, you know, it, it comes in, it has a peculiar kind of warmth to it, even though it's, you know, uh, well, we won't get too technical, but I don't know how technical, I guess I, you said I can go, I can get as yeah, technical. Yeah, go as, for as it. I, Please do. Please well, do. you know, the synthesizers of the 80s, the polyphonic analog synths of the 80s, um, you know, there were the ones that used discrete oscillators and the yeah. ones that used digitally controlled oscillators. So the DCO synths are a little thinner sounding, uh, like, the, like the Roland Juno, but that sound somehow manages to be warm in its own way. And so when that sound, I, I used Nords uh, with Cindy mm. and I, I was able to get fairly close. And at, at one point I was using an, uh, an OB6 on the last tour the, that I did with her, um, a summer tour that we did with Rod Stewart. Uh, I had two Nords and an OB6 and the OB6 really helped me get closer to those sounds because it was just, you know, the discrete oscillators on there made it really just not even even doing a juno type sound on it it's still it has a warmth to it yeah um anyway so that was it's it, i'm very i i'm very um what's the word i'm just very very picky about textures for myself probably more than 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 i need to be for certain gigs um but i really wanted to capture those sounds so with cindy it was very much about doing what was done on the record and, um, you know, and, and the same with Steven, you know, with Steven, I played on the records, um, at least the recent records. And so I had a say in making the making the parts, but I was doing the work of definitely the work of two people. We had two keyboard players and sit in Steven's band, but mm. we sounded like three and I was doing two of them. You know, I was playing all I was playing B3 and synthesizers. Um, pretty much constantly. This pretty much on almost every song I was doing both at the same time. And with Stevens' material, I'm not sure how familiar with all of this stuff he, he did, because um, it wasn't as successful as Cindy um, or John um, in terms of you know being inevitables. Yeah. Sun City was probably the biggest thing that he did. Yeah, yeah. That you know the, that the, the mainstream would know about. Um, 
but on that, uh, you know, there's a lot of Oberheims and Prophet Five on those on those records, mm. and so the, the OB6 came in really handy for that. But I'd be playing something very precise, like almost a, a, sometimes a sequenced part. I would be playing by hand, and at the same time, I'd be wailing, doing soulful, gospely, bluesy B3. Yeah. At at the same time, so it's like splitting your brain in two. Um, and so that was, but absolutely arranged every note. We had a fifteen-piece band. You saw the show, didn't you? I did. David? So, and we're going to go. Um, thanks to my obsession with this stuff in great depth on the, the Van Zant stuff, yeah. But it, it's I said to uh, Paul prior to recording that that's easily one of the highest quality sounding shows I've ever seen. We had a, a fantastic sound guy. We had um, Peter Gabriel's guy. Right. Well, that explains that. <laughs> it explains it. Richard Sherratt, he's one of the best sound guys I've ever worked with. Um and I've worked with some real good ones. Uh, Chad, who works with John Mayer, was also worthy of mentioning. He was he's uh, he's he's an amazing sound guy too. But yeah, but to to get that many musicians, that was such a thrill that tour with with uh, with Stephen. Um, Actually, because... Andy, um, that that is a really interesting project. Can I ask you how you came to be involved with that at the outset? How how did that all come about? Let's see. Where did I got the recommendation? Well, the, the musical director Mark Ribbler um, asked me to do it. Um, Mark is a guitar player and he had been working with Steven on Darlene Love's comeback record. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, which is a really good record, but, um, I also totally coincidentally, I had worked with Darlene for many years. Um, at least five years I've worked with Darlene. Um, and she's a powerhouse singer. Yeah. As you and and we would sometimes do show we would do Christmas shows and Stephen would sometimes be a guest although I can't say that I met him through that or that that in any way led to me working with Stephen but basically I worked with Darlene and I had worked with Mark and uh, both of them had worked with Stephen mm. and when Stephen decided to Stephen got asked to play. He was gonna. He was flying to London to play Bill Wyman's 80th birthday. Um, he was just being asked to sit in as a guest. Bill Wyman was doing a concert with his band with a lot of guests, and Stephen was asked to do it. And the promoter said, "Well, if, you're, if we're going to fly you all the way to London, why don't you do a couple of shows while you're here?" It ended up being just one, but he put together a band just to do this one show. And it was based, and he asked Mark, who he had worked with on the Darlene record, he produced it. Mark put a band together, and Mark called me, and so we did the start. The whole thing started out as a one shot, a one shot thing, um, where we just played. We played in London um, at the um, the theater within the O2 in London. I can't I remember heard. the name of it. Um, the O2, some kind of precious stone name. I can't remember. Anyway, that was that. And we had so much fun that he said, let's make a record. So when that came, when, when we all got back, we got into the studio and we made a record. Um, and then a tour the following year and then another tour and then another tour. And here we are. Mm. Uh, but we ended up with a solid 15 piece band with five horn players and three backing vocalists. And uh, it was quite a thrill. But so that, if that's that basically should how I got into it. And then it was basically mm -hmm. we I had to get over the hump of work of, of getting to know Stephen and working with him, which 
once you get over the hump is one of the best he's like your best friend yeah and I, so and so that's a fa- yeah fascinating point you make there i'm a, and this is all assumption i don't even expect you to confirm it but obviously um steven's role um in east street and with bruce is he's sort of um, right-hand man all those years that he's learnt from the best as far as being a band leader and I can imagine he's exacting but once you cover what he needs he's um, an extremely good boss he's the he's the best yeah you know I, I can't say anything but good things about him yeah. in terms of how he's how he deals with people how he treats musicians I mean he he took us all over the world we traveled and, you know, we like as, as though we were the E Street Band. We yeah. stayed in the same hotel. We flew around the same way they do, um, you know. And, um, you know, he got us into all the cool places in Monte Carlo and, you know, stuff like that we would never go to, you know. <laughs> um, we, got, we got to see life from that, from that point of view, which is a really interesting point of view. And, and you and you've mentioned the 15 pieces, and I've already said that it's one of the best sounding to us um, I've ever heard. Um, what, can you describe what the rehearsal process and, and the experience of playing as, as such a large ensemble compared to some of your other work? Yeah, well, you would imagine that with a, a band that large that, um, you know, we would say, all right, well, the rhythm section is getting together. You know, we'll we'll go over the songs for the first you know day or two days, and then we'll bring the horns in, and then we'll bring the, the backing vocals in. That's sort of the normal way mm. of rehearsing a larger ensemble. You know, you start out you do sectionals. You know, maybe the singers would get together on their own, or the horn players would get together on their own. Um, that's not how Stephen did. Stephen wants everybody there. Stephen wants all fifteen musicians there. Now maybe. <laughs> Maybe there'll be some side rehearsals, but we start rehearsal. Everybody has to be there. Everybody's there punctual. And the reason why is because he wants to hear everything now. He wants <laughs> to hear the whole thing. There's, and he, he might have an idea for a backing vocal part. He might seconds later have an idea for the horns. And he, you know, he's not going to, sit there with the, you know, with a keyboard and, you know, and use a horn sample and, and, you know, and try it out and, and, you know, have me play it on the horn, you know, with samples and, you know, and try out different voicings. He's going to have the actual horn players there. And there's one guy, Eddie Mannion, who is the, the head of the horn section. And he's standing, he plays Barry, mm. uh, in the band, and he's got a Barry in one hand and a laptop in the other. And as soon as he hums the parts, you know, Eddie's right there with his laptop entering it into Sibelius. Yeah. It's literally right then. It's, it's all done on the spot right there. And that's a really interesting way to work. Um, most people wouldn't do it because it's it's too expensive. Yeah. Mm. Because, you know, sometimes while they're working parts out, I'm twiddling my thumbs, you know, waiting for them to come up, waiting for him to. And he doesn't know theory. So he can't tell you, okay, do a, a, you know, do a major seven with a, you know, with a, he won't say that. He won't be like a dominant seven flat, you know, no. flat nine. Or he'll he'll play each note on the guitar and have each horn player match the note, and it will be painstaking, but it, it's amazing what comes out in the end. It's all there in his head. It just takes a little while, and he has his method, and it's like nothing I've ever 
seen really or experienced. It was such a such an amazing experience just to watch how his mind works as he would come up with the stuff lightning fast. And then he was just telling everybody what to do one after another. And he wanted to hear he 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 has like very 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 short attention span. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I'd assume that, yeah. Yeah, and and for me that was the that was a huge challenge because when he would have a keyboard idea, I'd have to. Uh, there, there's no like, hold on, Stephen, let me just program that for you. Hold <laughs> on, I'll, I'll be with you. You know, give me about ten minutes with the headphones. I'll come up. None of that. It yeah. had to be right now. Yeah. <laughs> You had to, I, I, I pretty much, I, after a little while, I learned what sounds he tended to go for, and I would tend to have them ready at the touch of a button. I could always add glockenspiel. To yeah. like that. <laughs> you want more glockenspiel? I got it. One button push and you're there. Boom. <laughs> On top of anything, I can add a layer. And it's, sometimes I would anticipate that. But I would throw things at him, and you never know where it would go. You never know what it would lead to. And it might not even be a musical thing. I brought, uh, there's one song on the latest record that I ended up playing a, a synth solo at the end of, a song called Education. Oh, yep. And um, I played it on the OB6 on the, on the record. And um, for the, you know, I, I was, it just felt to me like we were getting ready to rehearse. It felt really, it just felt boring to me to be up there on my riser playing it on the synth. Um, just because I, you know, I, I tend to come forward on more, you know, like I would come forward and play accordion on a song or something mm. like that. There was no, there was no opportunity for me to, to leave my, my little castle. So I took a chance and got a Roland guitar. <laughs> and so I showed it to him and he was like, eh, uh, all right, give it a shot. <laughs> so I came forward. I came forward and I played this solo on the guitar, you know, just feeling like kind of a doofus, but you know, what the hell? I just, you know, I need to break out every once in a while from, from being up there on the yeah. riser. Um, and so he said, all right, I think it'll work, but you got to get a new hat. <laughs> <laughs> I ended up with this badass hip hop, Stacey Adams brim, <laughs> which is the, the coolest hat I've ever owned. I didn't really own it, but it's it was the coolest hat I've ever had to wear. It's this bright red thing right out of you know, right out of a gangster rap video. And all because I decided to play that synth solo. And there's a thousand other stories I can tell you like that where just completely random things will develop that you would have never thought would turn into anything. Like how we ended up in a movie. We ended up in the we ended up in a movie with Kurt Russell. Oh really? All be Yeah, yeah. And that was all just because we decided to play this Ramon song with, uh, in a sound check. <laughs> it was a Christmas song. And he, it, it turned from a sound check into, hey, let's play it on the gig, into, hey, let's record. The, we record everything in multi-track anyway. Yeah. So then we have a live recording. And now let's send it to Bob Clear Mountain to get mixed. Wow. And then, well, we're going to release it. Let's do a video. And then from there, it was Chris Columbus, the filmmaker, saw the video and wants us in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> so this is just one strand in the life of Stephen Van Zandt. I bet to say, yeah, I can imagine it's a an very... An incredible individual, an incredible guy. Um, 
I can imagine it's you know, a very so organic that, experience, to say the least, from what you're saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, as some part of me always wanted to play in a soul review. I mean, it, it, yeah. it, scratched, it scratched a very old itch. I <laughs> wanted to, you know, I remember seeing um, film footage of the Stax review. Yeah. From, from uh, 1967. There's a great... I don't know if it's been released. It may have been released. My, my wife used to work for a film archive. Okay. And uh, they used to represent, well, they still do represent things like the Ed Sullivan show in the States and many uh, European shows and other music TV shows. They, they concentrate on music footage. And they had this footage. And I got the unexpurgated footage of the Stax review. And man, did I want to be Booker T. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I wanted to be that. I wanted to, you know, that was that seemed like that always seemed like the coolest job in the world, being him. And the soul uh, soul soul reviews a perfect um, description of it because I mean, obviously the the record was called Soulfire for good reason as well. But yeah, with fifteen and the pieces, band, the, and the, band. Yeah. the band was incredible, yeah. and yeah. Uh, it definitely I'd never obviously seen a soul review either. It, it had that vibe perfectly. Um, yeah. And it's obviously the selection of musicians, and that probably li links to another question about that specific tour. Is is obviously you were one of two keyboard players, and um, Lowell Levinger was was your um, brother in arms. There, um, do you want to explain a little bit about him and how you two work together? Because he's a bit of a well, a, a large legend that I assume Steve picked out specifically of his love of that older music. Yeah, well, Stephen. Steven was a, a young blood. He saw the young bloods back in the sixties when he was a kid. Mm. Uh, he was always a big fan of, of, um, of, of banana as they call him. Uh, he's, you know, uh, in fact, let's see. Well, I, he was just a sort of a legend in my mind before. I mean, I didn't, I, I only found out about him through Stephen because I knew about the Youngbloods, but I didn't know specifically about any of the members mm. and who they were, except for Jesse Colin Young. But um, when I was playing on the first record I did with Stephen, um, I did a, oh, I played um, a Wurlitzer part on, on one track and Stephen was really happy with what I did. And he was like, man, you made my day. You you sound you sound just like this guy Banana. Have you ever heard of Banana? And I was like, Banana. It's like the Young Bloods, man. I said, Oh, the Young Bloods. Yeah, I know the Young Bloods. So he then played me Sir Francis Drake, which is an in instrumental. Okay. With with the Wurlitzer with that Wurlitzer part. I was like, that was from what year? I don't know, 60, 69, I think. Um, anyway, so I thought, well, that's really good. That's really cool. Um, and then the next thing I found out about him was he was in the band it's like wow this he's still is he still alive my god all right yeah he's alive and well he's living in the bay area it's you know san francisco area and um so then he was with us and 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 um so he ended up getting dusting off his old Wurlitzer from the youngbloods days and and um so that be, that became part of his rig um which was great so he basically did most of the piano and obviously the Wurlitzer stuff. Right. Uh, um, on, and, and, and I did basically everything else. I did some piano also, um, but it was mainly in, you know, in the sort of in the bed, in the mix when we were doing, a, if, if, 
you know, he would have, I, I basically set, other than his Wurlitzer, you know, he's, um, he wasn't that familiar with modern keyboard technology. Yeah. So I had to, so I, I, I kind of helped him get set up. Um, I got him uh, a core grand stage digital piano so he can, for the piano parts. And also we ended up getting into some of the other sounds in there. It, it was quite helpful. Um, and then, you know, Whirly was his was his yeah. thing. So you know, he got his own little spotlight. You probably saw him have his little spotlight where he did a little bit of Sir Francis Drake on his own. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. So, you know, basically, um, we kind of, we just have our, our turf, you know, we stay out of each other's way, you know, <laughs> we, we, but, but, um, you know, I mean, I'll, I'll be, I will, I concentrate on the organ and, um, and executing all those synth parts. And I've got five things to do. And, yeah. and, um, and he gets to be banana, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> he gets to do what he feels and that's great. And so that, that's much more his wheelhouse. He comes from that San Francisco school of playing. And, and he also plays a lot of um, tenor guitar and, you know, mm. mandolin. He plays mandolin in the show and he has a whole kind of bluegrass side to him which which uh we touch upon somewhat in the show we, we get to use a little bit of that um and so that's that's more of his wheelhouse and i'm much more on one hand the technical guy and on the other hand also you know the the soul the, the soloist the b3 guy you know the jack of all trades on the keyboard world and the band so that's that that's kind of how we divvy up our roles um and uh you know he's got you know, in terms of offstage, he is the, you know, he has incredible stories to tell. He's just a beautiful guy. Yeah. You and know, so it, it's a pleasure to know him, uh, as well as everyone else in the band. We've got some absolutely fantastic musicians. Yeah. The great, great rhythm section. Um, I'll just briefly mention, you know, Mark Ribbler and Jack Daly on bass, who played with Lenny Kravitz for years, and Richie Mercurio on drums. And, um, we had a great horn section, a lot of illustrious people. We had Ron Tooley on trumpet, who played with James Brown in the 60s. Wow. Like, he played on Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. He played on I Got You, I Feel Good, uh, mm. Man's Man's World. He played on these classic records. Incredible. And, and you could have just looked him up in the phone book, you know, and, 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 and say you want to go on tour. Yeah. <laughs> and he was, the, he was there. And, he, and man, did he have stories. You know, between between Banana and Ron, we had yeah. the whole history of we had the whole history of music from the sixties <laughs> to the present. You know, I mean, Ron Tooley played with John Lennon. You know, just it's just you know. Anyway, so that was another that was just one of the the off the the, the stories that were told and the camaraderie off stage was, you know, every bit as great as the music. Yeah, it's great. And so two very short questions uh, on, on Disciples Souls before we move on to other stuff. Sure. Um, number one, ha I assume the tour had completed before all the lockdown. And I mean, is, is, is Stephen considering future stuff, obviously needing to work around East Street and so on? Yeah, um, I think he is certainly considering it. And I think he has ambitions to get back out. Um, I won't speak for him. No, no. But I know that... I know that um, you know, Bruce is due for an E Street tour, um, and I, you know, I presume, I presume 
that that will happen. And I mean, I have no knowledge. What's I have no, no, no inside. That's knowledge. right. Yeah, I'm whatsoever. not digging for it either. But I, pres- <laughs> I, I presume that he'll probably. My guess is is that Bruce will probably tour next year. Yeah, um, that's my guess. 2021. And uh, if we manage to get something in there, that would be great. But you know, I'm not expecting anything. No. Um, I, I. But then again, you know. I don't expect anything except the unexpected. That's right. With Steven. You never know where he's going to pop up and something else entirely is going to come together. You know, because everything that's happened has been, from the very beginning with him, it's been, well, can you do this one gig? And then that turned into three years of touring. That's right. And and being in a movie and being on stage with Paul McCartney. You know, that's right. I mean, I didn't, you could. You know, you couldn't have, if you had told me I would have if you told me that was going to happen, I would have la- I would have just laughed at you. That's you right. Mm. Well, that, that leads you know? to my last one, which is a little hypothetical. And I'm not even asking you, ha- uh, would you say yes? Because I can't imagine you wouldn't say yes. But God forbid, Charlie or, or Roy are sick for one show and they need a replacement for one night. But you've got two weeks notice. What's your reaction? Are you feeling nauseous or just excited? You mean if they said Andy Burton, we want you to play <laughs> just for one because, night? Just, just let, let, let's get this. Let's get this hypothetical straight here. <laughs> I've been asked, which I have not been. No, no. Okay, <laughs> I've been asked to fill in. Um, I would be excited as hell. Yeah, I've played with. I mean, Bruce has joined us on stage. Yeah. So I won't say I've played with Bruce. Bruce has sat in with the with the disciples several times, and um, you know. He is, he you know he is absolutely, um, someone I you know I admire like you know, just as a I'm, I'm getting tongue tied talking about it. Yeah. He's a, he's a legend, you know. Um, we've hung out with him backstage, and he can be a totally normal guy. Yeah, you know he's we've rehearsed with him sitting there on the couch just watching us, but he takes everything in, and he sat on the side of the stage, and I have felt his eyes on me. <laughs> Just glancing over, just taking in what everybody was doing. Yeah. Not a note. He didn't miss a note of anything we were doing. No. Um, and so he, you know, I, you know, it would be an honor to to, to work with him if the if if that ever came up. Having said that, with all all respect to Charlie and and to Roy, they're, they're you know oh, they're legends. I mean, those guys, I, I, you know, they're they're both fantastic, and and uh, you know, I would I would call them to fill in for me anytime. I. Would, I Charlie and I used to fill in for each other there sometimes on other gigs too. You know each other. He's a great and guy. And the reason I asked the hypothetical too, Andy, is is more about and asked about whether you'd feel nauseous or excited is just the pure back catalogue and the scope that that even trying to fill in for one night would be a gobsmacking uh, challenge. Assuming that you know, as you know, Bruce can throw out audibles here, here, there, and everywhere. Yeah. So I can only imagine as much as I'd be excited to go. Like, there's no way I'd say no. The actual task of getting on top of that brief must be enormous i couldn't even imagine it well it would be it would certainly cause some stress (laughs) just the the preparation would i mean i had to do that with something like that with john mayer when i got the call um i was filling in um the, the the things had not worked out with whoever they had as a keyboard player and they had already done some shows um, some sort of warm-up okay. shows, and John had decided that he wanted to uh, get a new keyboard player. So the band had all been rehearsed, um, and I and and so I had to learn all the material on my own, and I was only given 
uh, live recording. I mean, I had the records, yeah. but the live recordings, you know, he hadn't, he, you know, there were things, there were issues with some of the, the keyboard playing that, he, you know, there were things he didn't like about. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't really go by that. Um, I had to figure out what to play based on, you know, largely on the records, but I also knew he didn't want me to copy the records yeah. for note either. Um, and then what happened was we were supposed to start rehearsals. Rehearsals were starting June 27th or something like that. And then I was told we have a gig on June 26th. <laughs> so the day before rehearsals, I had to play a gig. And um, I had and I didn't know anybody in the yeah. band. I didn't I sort of never met John and I had never played a note with him. And so I had to learn everything without really having a reliable guide for what I should yeah. be playing. I just had to sort of figure it out and then meet everybody and then go on stage and play. So that was, if that, if that won't give you some gray hairs, I don't know what will. <laughs> um, but it was fun. Uh, ultimately, I, I liked, I enjoyed the yeah. challenge. So if something like that happened, I would, I would just, you know, I'd drop everything. I'd listen to every Bruce record and every live version. And I would just dive into it, you know, um, and hopefully come out, you know, not, not not embarrassing myself <laughs> which i'm sure it wouldn't yeah it would be the same with any gig yeah of course yeah. of course yeah absolutely no that's uh that's excellent um talking gear for a second which is something that we we love to do on this podcast if you don't mind what what keyboard equipment are you in love with at present or what would be your go-to pieces to use at the moment mm. well now you're talking about for everything like well, I mean, you can pick, for, for you can pick the scenario. So, yeah, you can sort of plug that into however you like. So, yeah, it could be for a, maybe to take out to a, to a live show or maybe for working on stuff at home or studio recording. I mean, I'll, yeah, sh- shape the answer the way that, uh, that, that suits you. Okay. Well, um, yeah, for, for, for anything like the way – anything like the work that, I'm, that I've been doing recently, um, I would say – um, my trusty Nord Stage Three. Um, stage, I've been I've been using Nord Stage Twos and Stage Threes uh, for the past eight years, um, and they really haven't let me down. Um, I can I can get most. It has a very very wide range of textures that I can get just about instantly. You know, um, so that so I mean. If, they, you know, they've only gotten better over the years. The stage threes are excellent. Um, you know, in terms of specific things, um, I really love for organ. I really love my Hammond XK5 mm-hmm. system that I, I ended up using on the last Steven tour. I, I love my Nords and I love my Hammond XK5. Um, but as, as far, you know, I um, what I'm in terms of, I'm I'm actually I would say the X the XK5 was a a wonderful thing to have on the road. Um, when I was with John, I had a B3 and a 122, uh, a 60s model, yeah. which was fantastic. Um, but I also had a tech that was, you know, one of like probably five guys in the world who who can fix a B3 anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a guy named Alex Alvarez who works with uh, Lenny Kravitz also and um he got my b3 to work in south america after it had been dropped at the port mm-hmm. this container had fallen wow. 10 feet 
at the port. And uh, the, the guts of the B3 were all over the inside of the shipping container. And he somehow had it working that night perfectly. <laughs> so people like that, if you don't have a guy like that, then it's harder to work with a vintage mm, instrument like a B3. So I, after getting very frustrated uh, using a B3 with Steven, I switched to the XK5 system. And um, Steven didn't even notice the difference. And, and in fact, it worked better in a 15-piece band because um, it, I could control my volume level without affecting my tone, and I could yeah. control my tone without affecting the volume, cool. which you can't really do with a, with a tube, you know, with a tube Leslie with limited power. And it was a hell of a lot more reliable. And I got this, you know, and, and whatever the differences were in the tone, they were lost uh, with a, in, in, in the context of a 15-piece band. You simply aren't going to hear the subtle differences um, in distortion between, you know, you'll hear it in a studio. If you had a, if you had it right next to a real B3 and an, and a vintage 122 Leslie, put them next to it, you know, with good mics in a studio, you will hear a big difference. Yeah, this, this the, the 122 sounds a lot, you know, creamier and warmer. Mm-hmm. But when you're on stage with 15 people on a stage in a, in a hall in the middle, you know, with everything loud, you, you just need to cut through. Yeah. And you need to have the sound and it, it's the, you know, it's less, it's less subtle. So I, I, I will say I, I truly loved having that instrument on stage and I loved having my Nords on stage. Um, and I love the Hawken continuum. Have you heard of the Hawken continuum? Yes. Yeah. Yes. That is a whole new world. And I, I, you know, once I played it for Steven, that was kind of it was kind of a mistake <laughs> because once he heard it, it was part of the show. Yeah, he wanted it everywhere. Yeah. And then it was part of the touring rig and I never saw it again, except on stage. Yeah. So right. I like to, you know, now that I'm off the road and now that we're all locked down, I'm getting to practice it again, which is great. Because it's in some ways it's like wanting to play the violin. It's it, 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 I've never had to worry about intonation before. Mm. And now any little flaw in my intonation, it makes me sound like a seventh grade violinist <laughs> when I play on it. Yeah, so well, I've, I've never played one, but, but I imagine um, just the, uh, the sheer ability to be so expressive in what you can do must be amazing with, with one of those. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so great. It mm. is, it's, really, it's really something. And I've found ways of working it into so many different contexts. Mm-hmm. I can always, you know, you can play a synth line on it. You can play a cello line on it. Yeah. You do. I mean, it's, there's, there's so many sounds. And I, I'm, I've only scratched the surface of what it can do. I mean, I've no, I know some people like Rob Schwimmer. I, do you know who he is? That name rings Have a you bell. Heard of him? He, no, I'm not he is a master. Key, he's a great, great, great keyboard player. Um, he's also um, a great theremin player. Right. He's made, uh-huh. he's made whole albums of himself on theremin, and he's a master at the Hawken Continuum. Um, and I I saw him. What in fact I did a gig with him, and in rehearsal he played on his Continuum. He played like a Beethoven string quartet, wow. all the part, all the parts, all the independent string lines, all the the cello and the you know and and the viola lines, and he played and all. It sounded like four instruments playing each with its own phrasing wow it truly sound and and I, I mean i can't do that 
that's something that um, maybe in 10 years, if I practice eight hours a day, <laughs> I could maybe, you know, I mean, it's like that. So, I mean, I, there's not enough time in one's life to master everything you want to master. That's, and that, yeah. that probably links nicely Andy, to a question I had, which was what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned over your career as a, a gigging keyboard player that, you, you know, if you could pass it on to someone, you know, what, what are the big lessons? Yeah. All right. Well, let's see. Let's start with let's starting with 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 music. With the actual reason you're out there, which is to play music. Mm. Um, start with the actual playing. Lessons. I would say um, know you know know your stuff. Know your know the material that you got to play. Know the know the songs. Know know about the artists. Know the history. If your artist the art you're working with has a history has a long history, get to know it. Listen to all their records. Mm. Know where they're coming from. Understand them as best you can because you're there to help them uh, sound good and you're, you're there to help them deliver their musical identity to the world. So you've got to, you know, you've got to understand who they are and you have to be support, you're, you are there to support them and you, you have to be a part of, a part of the backdrop mm. to them. Um, so, you know, in the case, if it's a Steven Van Zandt or if it's, um, if it's a Cindy Lauper or a John Mayer, all these people, you know, especially, you know, Cindy and, and, and Steven have long discographies, really long discographies. Um, and you got to get to know them. You, you, you understand somebody like Cindy, you got to really know where she's mm. coming from. Um, and so, and know the know, know the songs inside and out. Know your instrument inside and out, um, and be able and and, and be quick. You got to be quick. You have to. If so, you don't want to keep these people waiting. Yeah. If you want, that's just and 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 above all, and that and that falls under the larger category of read the room, which is to say understand the dynamic of what's going on you know you've got the artist that you're working for but you may maybe you're the musical director or maybe you're not the musical director but you you know how 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 who is the who is the musical director and who is the real musical director or you know you have to understand where the ideas are coming yeah. from and the, the, there's every band has got its own dynamic that's right. of that and you have to understand that dynamic and who is behind everything and what's what processes are going on behind everything and that's something that's merely really an intuition mm -hmm. you know like there was a in, in 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 uh you know in every band like in in rufus's band we had a musical director um his bass player brad albetta but even he would be the first to tell you that rufus was his own musical director yeah Ultimately, the artist is, but some artists take more of a hands-on role, and you know, and so things like that. You just have to understand how how things flow, and how to be a positive, how to contribute positively to that flow. When I say reading, it sounds very general, but what I'm saying, but really, read read the room, read what what's really needed, mm. and what's not needed, so you know what not to do, um, and how not to act. Generally. Be fun to be, you know, be fun, but uh, but don't draw too much attention yes. to yourself. At the same time, be invisible. Have really good, fun things to say, and then be invisible the rest of the time. <laughs> um, these are ways to. These are you know, uh, job security strategies. 
Um, and this, and, and also, and it, it translates into the playing as well. You know, when you're called upon to play a solo, um, that's when you, that's when your marching orders call for you to be as great as possible. Mm. And if you're being featured, then okay, take the spotlight for the however many seconds that you're assigned for that. And then go back to being invisible. That's right. Like go back, go play. When, if, if the boss wants you to play something and, you know, do something with this part that you're doing, put something of yourself into it and do it. And then you have to know when to go back to playing the parts from the record yeah. or, or just go back to playing pads or when to lay out, mm. you know, go to play tambourine. Um, you know, th- there, so all of those things, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know if I'm answering your question. No, that, I think that's good. Well, you, you've actually prompted me on something that's sort of an adjunct to that, that y- you talked about knowing the dynamic of the band and so on, it, whether you're in a musical director role or, or just a, a member of the band, have you ever had to say either, no, I can't do that or push back on a suggestion because you believe it wouldn't work artistically? And, and how did you manage that if you did do that? You mean, so wait, so let me see. So you're saying like if somebody asked, if the music director of a situation asked me to play something yeah, not that you, and I didn't. Yeah, not that you refused to play it, but just more either, and I can't imagine in your case, technically there'd be something you couldn't play, but just something that either didn't feel right or, or like have you been in bands where there is the level of input you can push back and say, how about I try it this way instead? Or is it a, a pretty um, hierarchical depending on the band you're in? If the, if the musical director of a band asked me to play something or if the artist mm. himself or herself asked me to play something, then there's no doubt I'm yeah, going to yeah. play. Um, and there's no, and, and I'm going to play to the best of my ability. And, and, um, you know, if there's something that I, I can't say it's really come up, no, but there's good. something that I, I really couldn't pl- I, I'm sorry. I can't do that. No. I feel like, that's, um, you know, I don't know if that's, if that's me, if I'm deluding myself in saying that, but, um, you know, I, I would generally find a way to do whatever I'm asked yeah. to do. Um, you know, if, and if, it, even if it involved serious mental gymnastics, I would try yes. to do it and mm. even would pile things on me because he knew that I could handle yeah. it. You know, he knew that I could, I, he didn't, he's like, I don't know how you do that, but you know, you can play this three parts at once, you know, I figured out how to do it. You know, um, that's not to, to toot my own horn, no, no, but that's, yeah. um, I would try to find a way and there usually is a way. Mm. Um, and, and generally you want to be a yes. You want to say, yes, I can do that. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and quickly. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, that, I, don't know if, I don't know if I really answered your question, but I'm, I am. Trying. I think you did. No, that's good. Yeah, excellent, excellent answer. Very helpful, actually. I think for a lot of a uh, lot of people who listen to this podcast, um, who oh, have themselves. reliable equipment. Have reliable equipment. You don't want to mm. say, "Oh, this thing broke. I'm sorry, I can't." You know. That's right. Mm. So that's not as much of a problem now because people are, you know, because things are a lot more reliable generally. But like with the B3, that was always yeah. a nice edge. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that, and that goes for anything. You know, even with the Wurlitzer that Banana would take, Lowell would take on the road. Sometimes there'd be a bum note, and it's like we almost don't have time for bum notes anymore in in life. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe with this, maybe after after we get through this horrendous epidemic, people will have a, a have a 
have a, have a more forgiving yes. attitude. A maybe we'll realize what's important in life a little more. Maybe who knows? Yeah, yeah. Hey, uh, Andy, what what other keyboard players inspire you? Ooh, okay. Well, um, you're gonna we're gonna have to break it down in genre a little bit. Yeah, go for it. Because I'm. Like I said, I, I, I have very eclectic taste. Um, uh, I would say in terms of early inspirations, um, uh, Billy Preston was a big early inspiration, Dr. John. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on a totally other level, um, Glenn Gould. Oh, yeah. uh, and then on a totally other level, Rick Wakeman and... Uh, Tony Banks from Genesis, um, uh, Carrie Minier from Gentle Giant, um, Larry Young on, uh, on organ. Um, you know, I mean, Jimmy Smith, obviously. Yeah. Um, uh, Booker T. These mm-hmm. are all people that that um, I, I, you know, I, I grew up in wanting to be at one at different times. I wanted to be all of these people. Bill Evans. Yeah. Um, some some uh one point i wanted to be ben folds <laughs> yeah. i know i lived in a while i loved his songs and i loved the fact that how he was able to get piano into into modern pop so well yeah. uh yeah um yeah so so i mean steve winwood you know um those are all people that at one point stevie wonder mm-hmm. got you know going on i mean the people that i wanted to people that I wanted to be at one time or another that I wish I'd come up with that. I wish I'd come up with that song. I wish I figured out, I wish I'd come up with that lick. I wish I'd been the first one to get this sound out of a mini mode, whatever, you know, mm. um, uh, I'm sure I'm missing some people. I wanted, I mean, I, I wanted to be Paul McCartney. I wanted to be Elton mm. John too, you know, um, you know, the way that, the way they played Leon Russell, the way those people, the way they played, you know. Um, later on, I wanted to be Ben Montench. Yeah, mm. don't we all? <laughs> Steve Naive from Elvis Costello. I mean, that uh, I love those records. I mean, I would say, uh, you know, at a certain point, that's what I was trying to be. I was trying to be, in some of my early, you know, like rock bands, I was trying to be like Steve Naive and like Ben Montench mm. and that, you know, those those are two players that um, oh Ian McLoggin God oh, yeah. I can't I have to say him I'm so lucky I got to meet him it was only months before he passed I got to meet him after a John Mayer gig um, but yeah but those guys yeah Ian McLoggin you know I I first heard him I know he's with the faces and small faces but I first heard him on you know the Stones yeah. Miss You I thought that was the coolest keyboard part the coolest electric piano playing um just so laid back and cool and mellow and, and bluesy and funky and you know um but yeah so I, I let's see um what was my train of thought there i was talking about who i wanted to be yeah oh yeah steve naive and and, and ian mcclog and, and ben montench those three guys are all examples of keyboard players who were not mere sidemen mm. they were keyboard players where the keyboards was unapologetically 
an equal part of the band to the guitar. That's right. They were absolutely those. They made. They had just as many signature parts on the songs as any of the as you know Mike Campbell or whatever or or um, you know any any of those parts or the guy from the Cars, Greg Hawks. Yeah, yeah. I loved the early, I mean, the synthesizer was right up there in front and center with all, you know, the tasty hooks were just as likely to be from a synthesizer as from a guitar. And that, I, that was, you know, that was, that was what I wanted to be. I wanted to be in a situation where I was holding my own with the guitar players and, and I've gotten to do that on occasion. And it's, mm. it's great when I get to do it, you know. Yeah, excellent. Um, yeah, and I think um, I think for a lot of us keyboard players, it's it's nice when we can uh, have our own space and and you know if if a, an opportunity to be in a band allows you to do that, it's absolutely fantastic. I'm I'm interested, Andy. Um, obviously, we're all dealing with uh, things we don't want to deal with at the moment in terms of external factors uh, keeping us cooped up. Having said that, what's coming up for you personally, music-wise, in the coming you know year, eighteen months or so? Oh. Well, um, I would say, um, well, we'll see what happens with, we'll, we'll see what happens on the touring front. Mm. Um, mm. you know, whether if Steven goes out again or not, you know, I, I imagine nobody's doing anything this year. I mean, I'm already seeing people booking me, booking, you know, asking me about dates in 2021. Yeah. So we'll see what happens there. You know, as I said, we don't know if, you know, Bruce may, 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 may jump into that. Um, so I may not be playing with Steven again until 2022. Mm -hmm. Who knows? Mm -hmm. Who knows? Um, yeah, but in terms of what's coming up for me, uh, I'm working on my own stuff right now. And that is, that's something I, I've put my own writing to the side for a long time at, um, Basically, not 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 necessarily by by choice, but just the way the way it's tended to work out. Um, and so, I, you know, right now I have written some instrumental music that um, I'm getting more into. You know, I mean, I've I've been getting it more into you know, not necessarily just vintage analog synths, but um, even modern analog synths that follow the vintage, um, that, that, that are, that are, are really closely inspired. Like I got the OB six and that was, that's, that's a great piece, but there's also some more, um, more boutique synths, if you will, that I've, that I've, um, I've been pursuing. Have you heard of the, the river by Balleron? No. <clears throat> that's a guy in France who makes this sort of eight voice polyphonic, analog that's basically it's almost it's it's sort of inspired by the moog source okay but it's like imagine if you had an eight voice moog source that's kind of where it comes but it's got its own thing entirely and it's got this it's it's really an amazing it's called the river to make anyway so i'm i've ordered one of those and i'm hopefully going to get one this year if you know if he isn't too held back by mm. what's going on in the world um and I love my Oberheims. I have an OBXA, um, and there's a clone of the OBX that's coming out called the VS1 that I also have on order too. I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to make, I, I'm hoping to evoke some great um, 
some great vintage textures in some yeah. of my instrumental music. That's that's I, I'm I'm looking forward to doing that. That's that's, and you know, if I get another tour with Stephen or Cindy or anybody else, I'll be out on the road. But um, you know, for right now, I'm I'm concentrating on composition at least day to day, right now, and doing whatever session work I can do in my studio which is still getting built that's right <laughs> I, I, I think you need to be learning some carpentry andy and, and do it yourself oh those guys are doing it i've got if, if those guys look i'm i'm happy to if they're taking the health precautions that they need to take um i'm happy to give people work that's right because lord, lord knows we're all gonna need it yeah exactly. for sure we gotta keep the economy going as long as people don't Get, you know, I mean, we, we obviously we have to. It's a it's a horrible trade off. Mm. It's a hard. You know, we don't want to get too negative in this interview, but we have people are facing some of the really awful yes. trade offs. Do I work and and risk you know illness or getting other people sick or 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 do I you know what, or I go bankrupt? You know, so I'm not in danger of either of those right now. I mean, any more than anyone else is. No. Yeah. So we're all in the same boat. I'm knocking on wood as I speak yeah, to you. Exactly. Yeah. Cool. I, I pray. I pray everybody stays safe. And we've already lost some artists. Yes. You know, and it's it's hitting New it's hitting New York really hard right mm. now. And some people I've worked, I've already a few people that I've worked with have already gotten sick, and you know, a few of them unfortunately have passed away. Um. And I I I, I hope to I hope that the rest of the world is spared what I'm afraid is about to happen nice. in New York. Um, but anyway, uh, trying to, you know, keeping hopeful, uh, you know, people are, most of the people I know are really following the guidelines yes. and hopefully they're all going to be okay. And hopefully we're all going to come out on the end of this and people will have had a lot of time to reflect and hopefully to create art. That's right. Yeah, you know, that. I've been. I, I'm looking at this as an opportunity because that's basically what you have to do in a crisis. Exactly. You have to find the opportunity. So if I've been, if I've neglected my own writing, which I have, this is my opportunity to no longer neglect it. That's right. And I can really, you can. I'm so busy making a living. I'm so busy jetting around and, you know, doing what we're all doing. We all, we all don't take enough time to reflect, and go deep. You know, in this world that we're living, we're all so connected with the internet, which is great. I'm talking to you mm. halfway around the world, but we can get sucked in and then not live our real lives right. so easily. No, it's, anyway, it's definitely... so I'm, I'm trying to do that. I'm not any better at it than anybody else. I'm probably worse at it than many <laughs> people, but I'm doing my, trying, doing my best. I think we're all in agreement, though, Andy. It's about the music, and that, that probably um, leads me to the final question, um, which is the dreaded Desert Island Discs. So... Oh yeah! <laughs> can, can you rattle off your five albums you couldn't live without? Uh, with the usual disclaimer, oh, everyone has different ones at different periods of time, but just throw five at us. All right. Well, I'm gonna have to. Okay. Um, I would. All right. So we're gonna start with. I'll start with um, Bill Evans. Everybody digs Bill Evans. Yep. That's a great record. Um, there's a box set. Can I do a box set, or does it have to be a single? <laughs> no, you can do a box set if you need to. That's fine. All right, the beat. That's easy. All right, I'll co I'll cover my classic <laughs> pop then. Beatles and Beatles and mono box set. Oh, yeah. That's Good every call. Beatles record. And all right, so there's no, there's you can't argue with that. <laughs> um, um, Pulse the planets. Okay, any uh, decent recording of that? Yep. What am I up to? Three. Yep. Um. All right, now I'm choosing here. 
All right. Uh, I'm going to say, so I've already did my Beatles. All right. So um, Dr. John plays Matt Rebenack. Okay. I'm hoping I have a piano. Do I get to have a piano on the desert island so I can at least play? And I can, <laughs> of course. Like, <laughs> All right. And then some kind of prog rock because I love my prog too. Uh, Gentle Giant, The Power and the Glory. There you go. That's, yeah, that definitely will keep you entertained, particularly if you do have your piano. Exactly. So at least I can, I can transcribe it, right? That's right. <laughs> um, I mean, we're all on a bit of a desert island at the moment and we do have our piano, so that's what counts. But... Andy, that's right. Thank, thanks so much for taking the time. It, it's greatly, greatly appreciated, and um, yeah, wish you the best over the coming months, and and look forward to seeing you back out on the road in twenty twenty one. Yeah, well, you too, and you know, hope you guys all stay safe and healthy, and all your loved ones stay safe and healthy, and uh, and I and I, I do hope to to be out there. I hope to come back to your fantastic country at some point. I've been there four times, and I loved every time. So there we have it. I enjoyed the hell out of that, Paul. What about you? Yeah, it was really, really great. And you know, Andy obviously is a passionate guy. And he, look, he's very generous with his time and mm. his thoughts. And uh, yeah, look, so for, for me, that was quite inspirational and motivational to, to learn a little bit from him and some of the great experiences he's had. And, I, and it shows you um, the level of both his proficiency and his courage that... <laughs> Not that the hypothetical is that likely to ever happen, because I, I hope that Charlie and Roy never do get sick and need replacing for a night. Um, but he, I reckon he would step up and he'd do a great job. Uh, I certainly wouldn't bet against him. No, that's right. So, yes, that, that's it for this show. We'll be back again in a fortnight or so, but just a reminder that you can keep in touch via a few means. So our website is www.keyboardchronicles.com. Um, we've got our little Facebook page at Keyboard Chronicles, and we're also on Twitter and love um, your feedback there at the keyboard chr one um, Always keen to hear from you via email as well, um, and that's editor at keyboardchronicles.com. So a huge thank you again to you, sir, for joining me again this episode. Hey, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to be asked to co-host. And uh, I know you're back for next one. And more, most importantly, thanks to everyone out there for listening. Uh, we do appreciate the feedback we get and um, our worldwide audience. It's, it's always lovely to you know get feedback from people in the US and France and um, UK and all, Canada, all over the place. So yeah, hope to see you back here next episode. Mm-hmm.